Hello everyone and welcome back again to the Full Circle Podcast. This week we're discussing the transformation that occurs after a life-changing event. When life throws adversity our way, we can be left wondering who we are. Events change us, they shift who we are, help us grow and ultimately redefine who we are. After these events, we are often left to take the pieces of ourselves and put them back together. This journey isn't an easy one, and it requires learning more about who we are and our authentic selves. My guest on the podcast this week is Tulsi Vajilani, a woman who has faced adversity with the utmost grace and determination. As you'll soon hear in my conversation with her, what she's experienced is something that few people overcome. Tulsi was on holiday in India in 1990, when the plane she and her family were travelling on crashed, landed and burst into flames. Tulsi was dragged from the wreckage and flown back to Essex where she was treated for second and third degree burns to 45% of her body. Tragically, Tulsi lost both her parents and her youngest brother in the crash. A few years after the accident, Tulsi was diagnosed with potentially fatal kidney failure and was forced to undergo a renal transplant. This was a turning point for Tulsi as she realised that she wanted to live life to the fullest and accept her appearance, a decision that had started her journey back to her authentic self. Now Tulsi is an ambassador for Changing Faces, which is a charity aimed at combating inequality and is also a Reiki Grandmaster and Pilates Rehabilitation Specialist. Tulsi is also an influential speaker, helping her audience discover their authentic selves with love and compassion. She is here today to share her journey of self-acceptance and how this life-changing event shaped her into who she is today. Please sit back and enjoy this conversation, but also listen to Tulsi's words of wisdom. Tulsi, I'm so glad to have you on the show today and I've been really looking forward to our conversation. So the topic for our conversation today is reinventing yourself after a life-changing event. I know you've had one of those and I wonder if you could tell us more about that life-changing event for you. Hi Gillian, it's so lovely to connect with you. Um, yeah, so my life journey started when I was 10. Um, prior to being 10, I mean prior to this event, I was just a jovial, happy, boisterous person. And in a split second, sort of life as I knew it, you know, just changed. So I was involved in a plane crash when I was 10 years old, in which I was traveling with my parents, my mom, dad, and my brother. We were in India visiting my great granddad. And my parents decided we're going to visit the south of India. So me and my brother, we were really excited because for us, India meant Goa, you know, beaches and sort of palm trees. Um, so when my parents said we're going to a city at the time it was called Bangalore, it was like, who, what does that even mean? You know, who, what is that? So obviously reluctantly we did get on the plane and, um, next thing, you know, I mean, I was fighting with my brother to sit by the window and then I hear my grandmother's voice who I'd left back in the UK about a week and a half ago. So it, the voice was, you know, not at the other end of a telephone. It was somebody very close. So I was like, oh, maybe she's come to surprise me on the plane. And, well, not me, but the family. And maybe she's traveling with us. And all she's saying to me is, Dulcie, 
you know, mum, dad and Gumlesh, that's my brother, have passed away and that you look different. And it was a bit like, but you've come on the plane to surprise me. How can I look different? What What is going on? Obviously not aware of what's actually happened at that point. I then hear a young medic's voice um, reassuring me I'm going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. Um, all the doctors are on the airfield. Don't worry. Um, you're safe. I'm, I'm going to look after you. And to me, that voice could be anybody. It could be the air steward for all I, for all I know. So... That's happened in a short space of time. Um, in terms of a time frame, it's probably about a day, day and a half after the accident. So I'm in India. I'm now flown back to the UK via air ambulance. You know, I meet another family there to later realize that family, the gentleman from that family was the one who pulled me out of the, the plane um, because he was looking for his daughter who I happened to be on top of. So... You know, at the time, I didn't sort of piece it together, even though I was told the information. I'm now back here in the UK at the St. Andrews um, Burns and Plastic Unit in Billericay, Essex at the time. And now I'm greeted with my other family members, aunties, uncles and cousins. So coming from a very close-knit family, in my head, it's still like they've come to surprise us on this holiday. But the information that they're giving me is literally the same as what my grandmother told me. Now, obviously, being 10, in and out of sedation, every, everything just seems jumbled, really. But it, I suppose it didn't sink in what they were telling me until about four to six weeks post-accident um, and being in hospital that removed the bandages from my eyes. And I'm really excited to see myself in the mirror because, to me, nothing has happened because I still feel tall, that's boisterous, loud and fun and jovial. I was interacting with my family just as Tulsi prior to the accident would be. Obviously, the nurse and the, the, the doctors were a little bit concerned, thinking I don't think she realises the severity of what's happened. Anyway, hold the mirror up in front, and I actually thought somebody drew that face on because that's not me. Because that's not who I remember to look like before I, you know, bef this is where, not who I was, because before the accident is who I am. And as the person in the mirror was moving their eyes and their mouth, it's when it dawned on me that, oh my gosh, that's me. That's actually me. And then I look at my left hand at the time, which was really red raw, you know, um, obviously the wounds and the scars, metal rods sticking out my fingers to straighten them. I think at that point I was like, okay, now whether it was naive or whether it was optimistic, I literally thought in a year's time there's going to be this magic cloth and they're all going to disappear. So I didn't think of it as a big deal. Again, you know, in hospital, everyone just treats me as me because I guess all the nurses, doctors, they see this day in, day out. They see the spirit of the person. My family have obviously had a lot longer to accept that I look different. So they don't see any different now in that respect. So, you know, I've gone in and out of surgery. Um, I'm just being me. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, just remarkable in terms of just being pulled out of the plane, as you've described. And and like you said, you were kind of in and out of the sedation. And, and I suppose most probably the trauma of all of that was probably something that you didn't process, obviously, for, for quite a while. So yeah. 
just so that for the listeners, I mean, you you literally had second and, and third degree burns over about forty five percent of your body. Was that is that right? That's correct. Yes. So yeah. I had burns um, on my face um, and on my scalp actually, um, and my body. So like my thighs and my left arm, they were a lot more deeper. So they were pretty much third degree burns. The rest of it was second degree. But you know, this all skin graft, this um, skin release is sort of about five to six years post-accident of in and out of surgery. Um, obviously, because I was growing as a child, the skin was stretching. So they had to sort of work on that because of the tight contractors, contractures. So when it becomes like a second and third degree, to be honest, it just felt like a third degree burn all over anyway, because I mean, I lost quite a lot of sensation in certain parts of my body as well. I have limited movement on my left hand, so you know, I can't make a full fist, but I suppose with all things, you just learn to adapt. And Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So out of that plane crash, were you the only survivor or were there other people that survived, you know? Yeah, no, there was some survivors. Um, I know of a family that I'm still in contact, you know, the one who pulled me out of the plane, you know, they live in London, so I'm, I'm connected with them. Um, you know, and just recently, he sort of, the, the gentleman told me the full story of what kind of happened and where I was, because it's, I guess it was one of those, although we've been in contact, you know, throughout the years, it was never something that I could just pick up the phone or go to the house and ask them what happened. And I don't know why. I mean, I don't know if it was because I didn't want to deal with it or I didn't want to know or maybe it's too painful for them. But this year was really pivotal for me because of the inner work that I've been doing throughout the years. I just wanted some sense of closure and or some sense of knowing and healing from that part. So when I asked him, you know, where was I? How did you find me? What happened after? It was literally... You know, he did pull us out of the plane, obviously, to, to get to his daughter. We were then taken to various hospitals in and around the city. Um, as, as you can imagine, there were so many fatalities and obviously injuries and um, a lot of people being treated for smoke inhalation, etc. So that's as much as I know of what happened after the accident. So I wanted to ask you around earlier on in the conversation, you said that, you know, didn't know whether you'd been naive or, you know, something like that to those words. And I wondered, when did the realisation kick in that, you know, you had lost your parents and that you were going to be living then with your grandparents? And, and how did you deal with all of that kind of information at such a young age? Yeah, so obviously after I left hospital, I got discharged, you know, I moved in with my grandparents from my dad's side. Uh, I've grown up in East London, so for me it was just kind of logical, schools and friends. I think, you know, with any kind of grief or bereavement or any kind of loss, it's like, obviously we have the first stage, which is denial, you know. And I did deny a lot of all of this happening. Um, I couldn't bear somebody talking about my parents, even mentioning their name. It was, it was just so difficult because it's almost like, why are you talking about them in a past tense? when they are still here. And I think it was probably about three years post sort of accident that I realized that they're not coming back. Cause up until then, I, I used to say to my auntie, you know, who became my second mum, that, oh, they've lost their passport. They're trying to get back to the UK. Obviously being India can be a bit difficult uh, because they've got no proof. And, 
obviously they're trying to reach us and maybe the phones are not great and just kind of kept going with that story inside my head really and so I think it was three years when I realized oh gosh they should have got their passport by now and they haven't and then it dawned on me I think okay when everyone said they're not coming back and they've passed away it sort of now started to make sense okay they're not coming back because up to that age I didn't know anyone that had passed away apart from some young cousins so I didn't really know what personal loss really meant, you know. And I think for any young person, child 10 or in, going into their teenage years, it's just very difficult to process that information, especially what you've been through. So I know that you then obviously settled with your grandparents and were continued to be brought up in the area that, you know, in East London, as you've described. But I know you also had some challenges, didn't you, as you were going through the recovery and getting back into life as whatever you could call normal and we're not necessarily those years were perhaps not necessarily easy for you so I wondered could you just share a little bit more about what you experienced sure yeah so you know like um earlier as I was saying in hospital everyone just treats you as you so for me I was like okay that's fine you know I'm going to leave hospital and they're going to treat me as Dulcie you know and it's the reality was sort of the journey to and from hospital journey to and from school just being out into the community, it was there that I realized that I was different, that I looked different and it and looking different meant something. Um, you know, I was open to bullying, so I was open to verbal abuse like, oh, you're ugly, you should have died. Oh my god, what's that on your face? People crossing the road in case they caught something. You know, the worst ones were like being called Freddy Krueger, who I didn't even know at the time who that was, who that even was. And it's not until I got home one day. So I just thought, okay, Freddy Krueger, that sounds pretty cool. You know, didn't know what <laughs> reference this was in. And then come home and my uncle's like, oh my God, you cannot accept that. That's not, you don't even know who that is. And then he explained, you know, the guy in, nightmare in elm street Street, yeah (laughs) and it's like oh my god this is how people are seeing me so from that i suppose somewhere along the line i adopted the fact that maybe i am a bad person and that this happened to me because i'm a bad person so i kind of almost took on that villainous type role and sort of made it my own if that makes sense internalized it obviously being called ugly again i didn't kind of really know what that meant looking in the dictionary is like wow is that how people actually see me so maybe I am ugly I don't you know this is probably what ugly looks like so again it's a word that I've adopted in you know and internalized and you know my self-loathing journey pretty much started then because prior to that I was really confident and looks and body image wasn't a thing for me back then um you know it's just happy-go-lucky great childhood fun laughter so it wasn't something I was insecure about, but suddenly I am now, you know, and coming from a South Asian community on top, it's all about body image. It's all about looking a certain way. And because I didn't fit any of that, I didn't belong anywhere. So I was kind of like this person just dealing with life on my own. And also when I talked about anything family-wise, it was like, well, it's done now. So what's there to talk about? So again, I sort of suffered in silent that way. And because I was never offered any sort of talking therapy type of um, services back then, it's just something I just dealt with on my own in silence. 
And that's unbelievable, isn't it? Because now that talking therapy is something that you would immediately receive and, and go to. But I appreciate in the time when this happened, it perhaps wasn't as, as available or as readily available for people. So how did you then navigate yourself through this time of your life? I think I just got on with it. And whatever got on with it means, like for me, it was, it's going to be okay, T. You know, tomorrow's another day. You have great friends. Obviously, you've got a great family. It's going to be fine. Even though I felt lonely inside and didn't know where to go for answers or didn't know what to do. So I guess for me, I started to suppress my emotions and feelings by, um, I suppose, drinking because being young, it was a thing, you know, and it became fun and it was cool. So in that, I was able to lose myself. I was able to lose those emotions and just be fun, tea and don't care about anything and then sort of starting on some soft drugs or you know however they sort of called but you know smoking cannabis and things like that again being with sort of not my school friends but outside of school meeting people who they felt different in their community so it's almost like I belong to somebody else who who were treated differently or seen differently and they just understood me so doing like cannabis and that and drinking is a great way to suppress it. But when the high comes down and you get the low, reality hits and you still got to face yourself. So I kept doing it again and again. But I was never satisfied. In that time, I had also started college now. So, you know, transitioning from school to college. So I met obviously people who are a lot older and they were sort of talking about being in relationships. And again, I felt so isolated because no one looked twice at me. Boys would just laugh at me if I even even approached them. So, of course, you can imagine my confidence at this stage is just non-existent. And then I sort of started to eat. I was sort of eating prior to that, as in, you know, eating a lot of junk food and comfort eating, as we call it, eating in secret. So buying food, storing it in my room, eating it, disposing of wrappers in some other person's bin. And, you know, all of this was going on. And the weight was piling on in the meantime as well. Yes, I could see I was putting the weight on, but I also couldn't see it because I used to wear baggy clothes anyway. And so that kept going on till so the year 2000. So bearing in mind, my accident was 1990. Um, so year 2000, you know, I was at the sort of pinnacle of my weight, meaning I was about size 24, UK 24. And in terms of my body sort of size and sort of where I've, where my average was is about 14. So you can imagine that's quite a lot. And it was until a, f a college friend who at that time I met was when I was doing health and social care. She said, look, Tulsi, I'm not calling you fat or anything of this nature, but I'm really concerned for your health. Now, when she worded it that way, it was there that I took notice going, oh my gosh, something's not right now. I do need to do something about it. Because prior to that, it was like, oh my God, you've gone so fat. Oh my, wow, you're so fat. Oh my God, you put on a lot of weight, you look so fat. And it was, that's all I heard. So where I heard that, I just ate more and more just to suppress that feeling now. So I was really feeling worthless and useless and obviously low self-esteem. So when I when she said what she did, obviously I started to look at my food, join the gym. Sure, you know, some of the weight was starting to fall off presumption would be that I would start feeling good 
But I wasn't, you know, I wasn't feeling good because internally I still didn't have that confidence. Externally, yes, I started to look better. So I still didn't like myself. I still self-loathed. And okay, the comfort eating had reduced. but I still felt horrible and ugly. And it was all because of my scars, you know. That part just wasn't shifting. And, and, you know, in going where I am now, looking back, it's never about changing the external that's going to bring happiness. It's working from the inside out, which obviously at that time didn't mean anything to me. So suffering in silence and not having a way out was difficult. And then I got introduced to doing a, a counselling certificate course, which was a massive pivotal change for me. So whether it was like, again, you know, whether it was me just being cocky or, you know, something going, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to do this course because I'm going to become a counsellor and that's that. When we had to write a diary every day of our feelings, our emotions and that, I used to fake it because I couldn't show that vulnerability in these diaries. So I used to, yeah, everything's great. I'm great. I had a really nice day today even though that day I wasn't feeling great, even though maybe I might feel low self-esteem. And because the tutor could see past that, they never questioned it until towards the end. And he said, this is your space for you to start your healing journey. And I was like, what? No, there's nothing to heal. I'm fine. I, I come to college. So I still denied that something was wrong with me. What I didn't realize was that course was the starting point of looking within and anyone who knows when you start looking within it's not nice right it's totally it's a horrible <laughs> yeah. journey because you really have to see sides of you that like that's not me no that can't be me but I didn't go on to do um the diploma because I think at that point is where everything came to light you know things were starting to surface and and again I still wasn't offered counselling anywhere. And sure, I could have seeked it, you know, by joining or asking my GP or anything, but I still felt there was a stigma attached to counselling or any any external help. So all those textbooks and psychology theories and all of these things, I started to read that. I started to observe and analyse other people. And that's when I realised... I have a lot of work to do, but I started to work through feelings and emotions. And that's the sort of time where I stopped sort of overeating and I stopped the alcohol and abuse, um, uh, the drug abuse at that time as well. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't overnight, it was, but it was gradual because I now didn't need those crutches. But yeah, that's, uh, that period was, you know, good 12 years after the accident thank you for sharing all of that because that sense of denial and and reaching for things that will give you that comfort as you said realistically you know what you needed to do was to go inwards and it takes courage doesn't it to mm. do that and as you said there are sides of yourself that perhaps you 
like for anybody who, as you said, goes on a journey inwards, there are aspects of ourselves that we can accept and we can deal with and be welcoming to, but there's also other aspects that can be a little bit more scary for us and a little bit more overwhelming because of perhaps how we've been behaving and Mm -hmm. how we've been leading our lives. So out of all that process, when you came out of that 12 years, and I know it's still like any inward journey, you continue on that forever really, don't you, once you start looking inwards. But I wondered if at any of that point, was there any kind of key learnings that you thought were things that then you could say, right, okay, well, I'm going to take these with me into the next phase of my journey of life? I think for me, um, I think at that time, I probably couldn't, you know, I think it was just still working through those negative words that I'd picked up along the way, you know, like ugly, um, useless, and all of that. So although, like I said, the weight was starting to fall off, and body wise, I was starting to look better. I started my Pilates journey at that time. But internal, the internal struggle was still there. I wasn't that beautiful girl in the bar. I wasn't that girl people looked like twice at again. I wasn't that girl people asked, you know, boys asked me out. I wasn't that girl. So I still felt empty. Um, and yeah, again, look, you know, I was placing everything on the external at that time as well. So whilst that was going on, I then enrolled onto doing my degree at the time, which was in well, it was at the at that time it was complementary therapy, which changed into applied health, and in that is where I specialized in um, Pilates and therapeutic massage. In midst of studying, it was great. I had so much knowledge from that, like anatomy and physiology. I could really understand my own journey of healing, um, particularly around my scars. Middle of doing my degree, and you know, I got diagnosed with end stage renal failure which obviously came out of the blue and it's like, hang on, I'm doing a degree that I'm, re- I'm doing something I really love. I'm finding a sense of purpose, which up until this point, I didn't even have. I just felt like I was existing, going through this life of pain and suffering, but kind of no meaning to it at that time anyway. You know, I got diagnosed. Now, like reality kicked in where actually it's nothing to do with my scars. It's my internal health now that's on the line. My scars never stopped me from achieving anything. It was my mindset. The negative connotations that I had taken on the narratives, it was that that's what was stopping me. And that's what I took forward of like, your limitations were always in your mind, never in your physical body, as in in terms of my scars. So here I'm now fighting for life on a different level where a breath is so precious. And I think that's where I start to value breathing and being alive for a different reason now. So between being diagnosed to being on dialysis now was only four months. So I've not really had time to process what even end-stage renal (laughs) failure even meant because it's not something I'd even sort of come across anywhere. So now going on dialysis, it's almost like another life-changing thing again, I guess, because it's now almost like mourning the past life and starting a new one because now it's literally full-on dedication to my health, plugging myself in every night, ensuring that I do everything right because if I have any more fluids, then that toxin's going to build up and I'm going to feel rubbish, a huge chance of getting um, 
infections, hospital stays, you know, it's a whole different ball game now. And this isn't about releasing a tight scar here and there. This is about trying to stay alive. So now appreciation for life is even different now. I did adopt that whole, you know, living in the now and the power of now because I started to read, you know, Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now around the age of 18. But now I'm actually living the power of now. Um, so, yeah, I finished my degree, graduated, and then two months after graduation, I get a phone call to say, you know, Tulsi, we have a, a kidney for you. It's like 11 o'clock at night, which at that point I thought was a prank call because who rings on your house phone at 11 and asked to just think that's a transplant? You know, it, I've never lived by the phone to wait for it. I was very much that kind of person. It will come when it's meant to. And if it's not, fine. Either way, I'm going to make the best of what I have in the here and now. And that's how I was living. So I get this phone call. I said, well, I mean, when can I let you know? Because I've got a meeting with the builders and, and architects tomorrow. So can I come after that? You know, so naive <laughs> about the whole thing. And he's like, I don't think you understand. This is a life-saving operation. I was like, okay, well, I reckon I'll be out in a three days. Maybe I'll sort of reschedule my appointment. And I think because if looking back at my accident and where it was very much like naive or optimistic, I suppose I've kind of lived that way, that it's no big deal, just get on with it, it's going to be fine. I guess, if anything, that's what's got me through is don't make a big deal out of something because in the grand scheme of it, it's a learning curve for something else. You know, it's everything's stepping stones towards the bigger picture. So I think for me, those were sort of stepping stones towards where I am today where I can share that story, where my story isn't wasted and those moments of feeling isolation or loneliness, they actually weren't wasted. They were for this reason, you know, why I'm talking to you or why I do my talks on stage and so forth. So I think for anyone out there who feels it's quite overwhelming or too much, I just think step back from the situation look from it from an outside sort of perspective and just know you're doing all the best that you can to get yourself out of that situation as well and be kind to yourself I think is the biggest thing we need to keep drumming in is be kind to yourself I couldn't agree more with that statement and I think sometimes though it is very difficult you know of when you're caught in the narrative and this the emotion of the circumstance, the situation, sometimes it is quite difficult, isn't it? Just take that step back and look from an external perspective inwards. But it is so useful because it can make such a big difference to how you perceive something or how you actually see it. And I think if you can give yourself or honour yourself to give yourself some compassion and some kindness and to treat yourself as perhaps you might other people, then that can also, as you said, make a big, big difference to how you view things. I mean, you've been through, this is what, just at the age of 26 or so, you've been through so much in your life by this stage. I mean, would you describe yourself as a resilient person? And is this something you've always been? Because the way that you're talking about it, you have this kind of amazing philosophy around how you've approached all of what you've experienced up until that age. I mean, I, did, I didn't even know what the word resilient meant 
until I had counselling um, after my transplant. So I was just sharing sort of the heaviness, not even about transplant, I think about life. And one of the first thing the counsellor said, she goes, my gosh, look at your resilience. And I was like, I th- again, being in that negative mindset, I just thought, she's saying something negative. They're like, what does that even mean? Because it almost like she's, it sounded like, not like she was blaming me, but it was almost like it was like some sort of word that was about blame. So I didn't even know what resilient even meant. So I was like, yeah, maybe I am. But going out, you know, coming out of it and looking at what it meant was like, maybe I am resilient. Maybe I don't know why I'm resilient. Is it maybe that I just just take on pain and process it and then transform it into something else? Or is it just because I'm a sucker for it, I don't know what to do with it and I'm going to absorb it? So I didn't know at the time. But I think resilience is learning how to use your emotions better. I think that was the the word for me, is not to sort of flare up and take everything personal. I think sometimes we take things so personal and we get lost in that. And for me, that was the biggest thing. So sometimes when words are projected onto me, I have to look at and go, actually, does that word even represent me? Does that word even mean anything to you? If it doesn't, I've got to throw it in the bin, you know, it it goes out. So that's what I started to do bit by bit. And I do that. It's a daily practice for me now. It's something, it's almost like, you know, that commitment I've made to myself is anything that's coming to me, I then first process and then digest whether I need to digest it or whether I just need to reject it. And that's what's helped me. What a useful skill, though, as well, I think, for people who are listening as well. I think it's a really useful tool and technique, actually, isn't it, to be able to do that. And I suppose you're right, it takes a commitment and regular practice of that to really get into doing it consistently, I suppose, so then you can start to see the benefits and the rewards from that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, for such a long time, because, you know, the word ugly, um, disgusting, all of these types of words, I've, like I said, I adopted. So it takes, obviously, a long time to decondition that, you know, because obviously it's drummed in, it's very deep. So to counteract that, and it was really hard, was I used to talk to myself in the mirror and go, you are beautiful. But my God, it was so hard. It was so painful. It was almost like probably pulling teeth out. Like it was that painful. And it sounds dramatic, but it was almost like, you are beautiful. And it was like, I couldn't get the words out. Yet, to describe somebody else, oh my God, you're so beautiful, so natural, so flowing. Yet, I couldn't do that for myself. But again, that was almost a daily practice of just look at myself in the mirror, really pierce my eyes into the mirror and just say it. And now it just flows. Like before it was gritted teeth. Now it's just like, of course you're beautiful, you know. And that comes with its own thing is where, you know, I think it's so important is beauty is your own version of it it's not an external person's version of it and that's one thing that we all need to learn to do is look at your own beauty your own way it's not anyone else's opinion because like I'm quite flamboyant with what I wear sometimes things don't match and it's random colors but in my head it works and I feel comfortable and that's all that's important and 
yes, somebody might go, oh my God, what are you wearing? And I'm just be like, whatever I'm wearing, I'm comfortable. You're not. You need to look at what you're wearing and why you're wearing that. Why are you wearing things to fit in rather than making yourself feel better and yourself feel beautiful? So I've taken my own version of beautiful and made it for me. And when we do that, we're going to radiate beautifulness anyway, if that's ever a word, but we're going to, because the more more we work on ourselves, the more our light's going to be brighter, right? Absolutely. And I suppose that level of acceptance and like you said, letting go of those labels, it's going to take a long time because once we kind of agree with those labels, that's then what's inherent and ingrained within. And so that unpacking of all of that yeah. takes time and commitment and courage as well to do it, to be able to face yourself in the mirror and actually agree with yourself and accept that you are beautiful as an example, as you've just shared. And so I'm, I'm kind of really curious around, obviously, because you speak at so many events, and you do such good work. Well, you've, you've done loads of good work over the, over the years. So tell me a little bit more about what you're advocating for now and the the aim and your purpose around this? I think first and foremost, you know, my purpose is to one, share my story and is to give anyone that I meet is the ability to accept themselves as they are. Accept your true authentic self, present your true authentic self. And when you are your authentic self, you know, you're this magnificent being and Therefore, that's going to radiate far and wide and it's going to have a domino effect. And when I know that now, like I want to spread that far and wide, I want to spread it globally, you know, on big stages, big arena, because I want more and more people to access what what I've got. And technically, it's free in respect. It's just the work you've got to do internally. You know, it all comes from within. So that's obviously taken a long time. Um, and, you know, this sort of started off around the age of 18 when I was reading, you know, Eckhart Tolle, like I said, Deepak Chopra, Quantum Healing, you know, all of these things. Then sort of my spirituality journey started around that sort of time, you know, in terms of background, you know, I've grown up as a Hindu, um, but I never practiced anything, you know, no rules and rituals or anything. But a lot of the philosophy around that I started to sort of take on and then I started to look at other religions and their books and sort of took on their their spiritual aspect and kind of created my own should I say and now that's what I go on I'm a free spirit you know I'm I'm not here to be bound by any labels or any limitations and you know in that has led me to be um an ambassador for Changing Faces, which is a leading um, charity in the UK for people with visible difference. And I campaigned for change because all those years I suffered in silence because of the way I looked. I don't want that for a 12, 13-year-old right now going through that because everything I do is healing my 12, 13-year-old who didn't have that support, who didn't know where to go, who who was suffering in silence, who thought was a bad person. So that's why I campaign and you know you know I've done some amazing campaign work with them Uh, currently we were um, I did I'm more than your your villain so it's about you know changing the narratives in our popular culture around representation of um, villainy with a visible difference we don't need to do that with every visible every villainous character 
um, why can't I be a heroine in a film or a leading role or someone in the background making a cup of tea? I am part of this society, as is anyone with a visible difference. So let's treat, um, let's have positive representation. Um, that's not to say we're getting rid of this, but it's just let's change the narrative now. You know, let's get better script writing. That's one of the campaigns. Another one was hate cam hate campaign where I didn't know I could report a hate crime because of the way I looked and the sort of abuse I would have got. Because again, I thought it's part and parcel of somebody with a visible difference has to get on with. But it's literally, it's not acceptable. It it shouldn't be something part and parcel, you know. Any form of abuse shouldn't be part and parcel. Um, so I do that. I'm a Reiki um, grandmaster as well. So I do sort of healing work around energy and quantum healing. You know, I, I do crystal healing as well. And, you know, I facilitate meditations because I really like to take people into the inward journey of themselves, but without the jargon and making it accessible for everyday people. Because even the word meditation used to cause me more stress and anxiety than probably what it should have done. Because the word just felt like it's for people out there. It's for gurus. But it's like, no, it's accessible for everybody because it's just breathing and emptying the mind and you know that's what I do I'm also a model um with Avon so Avon have signed um the pledge to be seen which is amazing where they have better representation again with their models um I've done catwalk modeling so again my 12 year old didn't even imagine being on a catwalk looking the way she did so it's giving hope to people despite how they look they too can live their dreams and have big dreams and fulfill them. Absolutely. And what remarkable work you're doing. It's phenomenal, actually. And I think to bring this awareness to our society is so critical and crucial. I think it's amazing. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Oh, got a bit emotional there as I said that, but that's came, really came from the bottom of my heart that, so thank you for that. So I loved that phrase of, you know, letting yourself shine that you mentioned before. And I know that you're going to continue to advocate for this and, and allow people to connect or introduce people to connecting much more with their true and authentic selves. Very similar to the work that I do, um, but maybe coming at it from similar, but maybe dissimilar avenues as well. You mentioned something before that really struck me, which is around this sense of just your philosophy of this sense of living in the moment. And I've just got a couple more questions before we wrap up, if that's all right. So tell me about what's next for you, knowing that you live in the moment and you're quite open to go with the flow and surrendering to that moment. So, so do you have any plans or any thoughts on where you're going to go next and the work that you're going to do next so you know what's amazing um Gillian is where I have surrendered I have literally left the path open you know years ago it would have been oh my god okay next month I want to do this and this is where I want to be that's lovely but that's so much pressure and it doesn't always mean that's my path so even becoming a motivational speaker is not something I even imagined doing because that fear of people judging me or that fear of judgment being, you know, somebody looking at me. Obviously, I'm past that. It's, again, I know my work is going to get, you know, bigger and better and more busy, and it's going to be very global. For me, going global is massive, you know, for me, because I love traveling. I love getting into small communities and making a difference there. So I know that's going to happen. 
But I think when anyone says, what, where do you see yourself in five years, for example, for me, it's like, first and foremost, is to be alive and is to be breathing. It's like, for me, that's my biggest goal. Whilst I have that, whatever comes my way, whatever path comes my way, opportunities, I'll pick and choose those that are that resonate with me and that will help me transcend higher, help me meet my higher self even that much more. To preserve energy is really crucial for me so that I can deliver more and not be burnt out, you know. Um, and yeah, so what I would like to be doing more of, I suppose, is more campaign work, but picking and choosing my injustices just that much more as well. And I guess serving humanity has been something from a young age for me. It was really massive. I think just more of that and exploring more of my traumas that I probably didn't even know I still have. And the healing journey, like we said, never stops. It continues. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Thank you. So you've learned a huge amount. You've shared so much with us. But is there anything around the transformation of you coming back home to your true self, in essence, and connecting with the beauty that's within? Is there anything there that you could share around any key learning or anything that you could share with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Like for me, coming home to ourselves, we we can say that so much when when you do any kind of internal work, like trauma work, or, you know, whatever we're doing, and you have that sense of, wow, a week ago, this is how I would have done it, but look how I'm doing it now, or a month ago, or a year ago, or five. I do that literally daily. I would have, something would have happened, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, how, last week I would have probably wanted to throttle someone, you know, literally, or now I'm just like, yeah, cool, no worries. And that is us coming home to ourselves where we're not fighting ourselves, where there's no tugging, there's no pulling, no pushing. It's just being. And being, if we think about it, our first breath on this planet when we're born, that first breath is love. That first breath we and what a child looks for is its primary caregiver, you know, in most cases, the mum, a mother um, or guardian. But all they're looking for is love, right? And in this case, it's a form of food or, or nurture, comfort. That's what we're all looking for. We look for it in different ways. Along the way, you know, we've all been conditioned differently. Our experiences maybe, maybe made us a bit more sort of stone-like, shall I say, because I've been there where I put the guards up and I showed no emotions. I was very stern. But break us all down. Like when I mean break us all down, open us all up. And all that's going to be is always going to be love. And any negativity, you throw light into it, i.e. love or compassion, that darkness is going to start diminishing. You know, it's not going to get brighter. It's like, I mean, the light's going to get brighter, but the darkness won't. The darkness will start diminishing. And so for me, it's throwing light and love at every situation. So when somebody comes to me and says, this has happened, and I just shine the light on it or shine some love on it, they're just like, wow, oh my gosh, it's not as heavy as I thought it was. Or, wow, you helped me transform that. Or, oh my God, I can't believe how light I feel. And all it is is because I held space, showed them unconditional love, showed them compassion, no form of judgment. And that's all it is. It is. It's interesting because when you do shine that light and love on a situation, even if it's the most challenging or horrible experience that you're having, 
you relate to the experience so differently and within that you relate to yourself so differently so I think those words are very wise and I'm sure I've certainly I agree with that 100% and I'm sure our listeners will really resonate with that as well so I just want to say thank you so very much for talking with me today I've loved really getting to know your story and I know our listeners will feel the same so where can people find you where can our listeners find you and to hear more about the work that you do yeah I I mean before I even share that there's something before I forget which is always magical when I talk about my path um you never know who you're going to meet so that young medic that I mentioned earlier he is now one of my uh, renal consultants so how surreal somebody in India who was a junior medic doctor you know 20 odd years later he's my renal consultant like how amazing is life where you're going to meet certain people that were always going to be part of your path and you just don't know why and how so I really want you to share that because that's the magic of life Uh you know for sure amazing people will come back into your life in such a different way but yeah so going on to where you could find me and i'm i'm in instagram dorsey divine 108 i'm on um, facebook dorsey like journey i've got my website you know dorsey so you can find me on various platforms so yeah thank you Wow, what a fantastic conversation and wow, what a woman you are. So thank you for sharing your beautiful soul with us today. I feel very honoured and privileged. So thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Gillian. I've enjoyed it just as much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I'd love to take a moment and tell you about our wellness retreats that will be happening in May 2022 in Mallorca, Spain. My team and I have created four immersive retreats that allows you to take a step back from all the stresses and strains of your daily life in order to focus on your physical, mental, emotional and spiritual well-being. From coaching mastery, mindfulness and meditation, conscious living and so much more we offer a nurturing and truly experiential life enriching environment where you'll reconnect rediscover and reaffirm who you are and what you want in your life if you're interested in learning more head to the fullcircleglobal.com website and click the retreats tab in the meantime stay well invite joy and curiosity into your life See you soon.